Welcome to Naples Talk Radio. Naples Talk Radio is a podcast where you go behind the scenes with the local community leaders to hear stories about how they are influencing and changing your Southwest Florida community. I'm your host, Mark Matos. Today I'll be meeting with Reverend Van Ellison, President and CEO of St. Matthew's House. For nearly three decades, St. Matthew's House has provided solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, drug abuse, and poverty. In addition to serving nearly half a million hot meals, the residents have also achieved nearly 90% employment. Reverend Ellison has appeared on numerous television and radio programs as an expert in issues on hunger, homelessness, human trafficking, and drug addiction. He is also a regular contributor to townhall.com, and his writing has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the Naples Daily News, the Orlando Sentinel, and the Tallahassee Democrat. During Van's tenure at St. Matthew's House, the organization received the 2015 Harvey Katnick Award, presented by the Community Foundation of Collier County. Van Ellison, welcome to Naples Talk Radio. How are you today? Good. It's good to be with you, Mark. Good. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a um, longtime Naples resident. Moved here in 93. It was a lot smaller town and a, a lot different place back then, but yeah, I've been really here. Was. Love the community. Been part of it. Um, been working in ministry and really working with broken folks, alcoholics and drug addicts and folks on the streets for 33 years now. I love what I get to do, making an impact in the world around me. So you started as a minister. What, what did that look like? Well, I went back to school. I kind of was a little bit of a prodigal son. I went to college and kind of got into mischief. And um, at 22, I decided I need to get serious. And I really started searching and uh, ended up resolving kind of my struggles with the Lord and and decided to go into ministry. And I thought I would be serving in a church or overseas or something. But I developed very quickly a burden for people on the streets. And in Clearwater area, I started going doing outreach to drug addicts and um, some really difficult folks in the downtown areas, and that really became my passion, working with that population. So I've never served a church in the classical sense. I've never been a pastor, but I went back to school to study for ministry and worked my way through school in the psychiatric hospital business, kind of working with drug addicts. And um, just that passion for that population and making a difference is, has really grown over the years. That's where I love working with those folks. And so now you currently run St. Matthew's House. I do. Tell me about that mission. Well, I've been at St. Matthew's House for 13 years. We started as a local organization back in the 1980s out of a Bible study, really, a a group at St. Paul's Episcopal Church were doing a small Bible study, and they came across a passage in the New Testament, the book of Matthew, chapter 25. Jesus said to his disciples, at the final judgment, I'll judge, were you my followers? Were you my disciples? When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And when I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. And he goes on, and the disciples respond, Lord, when did we see you hungry or naked or thirsty or homeless or sick or in jail? And he said, whatever you do for the least of these, you've done unto me. The next day, there started a series of articles in the Naples paper about homelessness and about a man eating out of a dumpster and there being no hope. So the Ministerial Association came together, a whole bunch of folks saying, we can do better in our community for the poor among us. And so we've been a local uh, organization. We're not affiliated with any denomination, 
But our passion has been over the years, homelessness, hunger, and dealing with the issues that lead to those things. And substance abuse is one of those, unemployment, lack of job skills. There's a lot of different things. Uh, We take people at the bottom and really want to see their lives transformed so they can uh, join the mainstream and be productive citizens again. Most of your operations are in Collier County? They are. Um, We have uh, we started here in Collier County. We do have a facility in LaBelle, and we have a thrift store up in uh, um, Fort Myers and one in Bonita Springs as well. So Collier County, there's a general perception it's an extremely wealthy county. Yeah. And it is. It is, sure. So how does homelessness happen here? Well, I think about the number one cause of homelessness is being alone. If you think about everybody that's listening out there, There's somebody in their family that struggled with substance abuse, with mental illness, loss of a job, a divorce, incarceration in the family, all the issues that can happen to a family. The difference is with our population is when there is nobody to take their call, when there is no safety net. And so you and I, if we lost our jobs today, we've got some money in a 401k to rob, or we've got some money on a credit card to pay a few bills for a while. Our folks, um, the working poor in a community like Naples, where there's such wealth, there's a lot of service industries. And so the waiters, um, the folks working in construction, oftentimes they don't have the safety net that many of your listeners will. They're one paycheck away from homelessness. And, you know, the population that uh, a large percentage of the Collier County population, if they had a $400, $500 bill, that came due unexpectedly, they wouldn't know where to come up with the money. They'd have to pawn something or work overtime. And especially now, out of season, there is no place to work overtime. And so that population falls between the cracks. And so we really, I think of our our job is to be a family of last resort. When somebody has nobody, they don't come to us when they're looking at all of their many options. They come to us when we're the last option. And we're there to provide a smile, warm plate of food, um, care, concern, safety, shelter, and the structure to get their life back together. So typically, does somebody spend some time on the street before they end up at St. Matthew's house? It's not uncommon for somebody to be weeks or even months on the street. The chronic hardcore homeless that you see in big cities, you don't see much of that down here. Uh, We have a community that doesn't lend itself well to living in the woods for years because of mosquitoes, because of swamps and rain. And we really have a pretty structured, safe community where you don't see that. Big cities, you see chronic, the chronically mentally ill being on the streets for decades. You don't see much of that. There is some of that here. Um, but they will come to us from the streets. Somebody gets out of jail and they, they've lost everything or they've been discharged from a hospital. We have people almost every week you'll see somebody coming over from the hospital having been discharged. They've been waiting tables, paying rent somewhere week to week. They got sick or injured, and they end up being discharged with no place to go. So they can come from an institution like that. And a lot of those folks are very grateful because without us, there is only the streets available. What type of solutions would you have for our community? I know you provide the services as a safety net, but it sounds to me that the problem is much bigger than you guys can accomplish on your own. So what can the community to do to address this issue? Well, one of those things that's getting a lot of a lot of attention right now in our community is the idea of workforce housing or 
low, moderate housing issues. If we, if you gave me $800 per person to pay for rent, I couldn't find an apartment to rent for that. Um, there is no workforce housing really available in the community. In a boom market, one of the strange things, um, in a boom market, as our real estate values go up, as rents go up, you end up in a situation where those who are working and the working poor, they're left out. They're left behind. The other thing that happens is substance abuse issues are really prevalent. And so it's not uncommon that the substance abusers that come to us, they're really struggling just to pay the bills and uh, their addiction is screaming for every dollar that they make to be, to be spent on their addiction to feed that. And so we want to help them find healing and recovery. Um, there is recovery from addiction, and it's epidemic in our country right now. We see a heroin overdose rates all over the country just at skyrocketing uh, levels, and that's happening here as well. We see fentanyl and heroin overdoses, and so aggressive law enforcement, community efforts to really uh, deal with the addiction issues. Those are really probably the two things that can be changed by a community is having a sober, safe community and having affordable housing for workforce people. Specifically, I want to talk about the opioid epidemic because I know it's ravaged the town where I went to high school in Taunton, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that it started with basically a generic drug, right? Some some form of Oxycontin, where people get hooked on, they get prescribed by a doctor. Right. Next thing you know, they're completely hooked. Then it gets pulled away from them, and they end up on heroin. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been in the substance abuse recovery field for decades now. And 10, 15 years ago, you almost never saw a heroin addict. What you saw was cocaine epidemic and alcoholism. Today, what happened back in the late 90s, you started seeing a greater prevalence of prescription painkillers, Oxycontin and Dilaudid and Demerol, and there's a whole wide range of prescription drugs. And those are appropriate when taken under the care of a physician in a structured setting. If you and I have surgery, we're going to maybe need Oxycontin for a few days to get us past the pain of that initial procedure. The problem is that they're abusable drugs. They can get, give a person a sense of euphoria. And so back a few years ago, they, Florida started being really known as a, as, a, as a state with a lot of pill mills. People were coming here from all over the country to get uh, prescriptions so they could go home with a suitcase full of drugs. And so Florida passed some laws about tracking the prescription drug abuse and those who were doctor shopping were now committing felonies, and they could go to prison, go to jail. So and did the crackdown on pill mills exacerbate the problem? Absolutely. It made it worse. Well, prescription drugs were cheap and easy to get when you had pill mills. Now, all of a sudden, the uh, Oxycontins, the prescriptions, are now harder to come by, and there's a traceable way to get somebody. Doctors have to report their prescribing information so that pharmacies and doctors are now part of policing the, the over-prescribing. So individuals started now turning to street drugs. With immigration issues, the borders being porous, um, you saw that massive amounts of heroin were coming 
across the southern border. And so you started seeing heroin, which was not an issue, again, 10, 15 years ago, now becoming more and more prevalent. Now with the uh, synthetics, the uh, fentanyl and carfentanyl and a couple of other drugs that are, are coming online that are, are synthetic or laboratory produced, those are being brought in from overseas in container ships or can be manufactured in a lab by somebody. And they're, you know, 50 to 100 times more potent than heroin is. And in, in really the result is selling those drugs is highly profitable, right? It, well, it's profitable and it's unpredictable. If I go and take a Tylenol or um, acetaminophen for my headache, I know what dose I'm getting on that one pill or those two pills. That's, the case, that's what pharmaceuticals do. Street drugs, um, you don't know the potency of it. It's cut, so it may come out of a, off of an opium field or opioid uh, poppies that um, come off of a field 99% pure, but it's cut and cut again and cut and then mixed with some fentanyl to boost the, the potency of it. So you don't know what you're getting. So the dealer is making a lot of money, but he doesn't, he doesn't even know or she doesn't know what they're giving you. So you might be doing drugs and everything's fine, you're getting high, and you're spending your cash and going broke, then all of a sudden you and several folks die. There was a situation not long ago in, in Cleveland, Ohio, where one weekend more than 200 overdose deaths, where uh, fentanyl was l- laced in the heroin, and and it was on the streets, and people were just dropping dead everywhere. And it, it you know, while the dealer made a lot of money, there were a lot of uh, bodies in the morgue. And that, the source of that drug came from where? Um, fentanyl mostly is being imported from China, and um, it's a synthetic, and carfentanyl is a veterinary type of drug that oftentimes is used with very, very large animals, elephants and rhinos and things like that, and it's more potent than fentanyl. Um, so there are legitimate uses in some ways for those very potent drugs, but those have to be very, very closely monitored, and they're certainly not for recreational use like we see on the streets. So tell me a little bit about what what addiction is. And, and we currently address in our society addiction as it's criminally prosecutable, it's a crime. But I know a lot of healthcare <laughs> professionals have been looking at this more as a disease that needs to be treated like a disease. Tell me your opinion on that. Yeah, that's one of those things. Many years ago, people looked at addictions and they said, well, this was just a moral issue. Um, I come again from the world of theology and and Bible and things like that. And people looked at sin. And sin, by its definition, is missing the mark of what God has for you or going off target or, or doing something that you know is wrong. So there is a little bit of that element of that. But then when they look at what a disease is, we define that a disease is a destructive process in an organism, in this case a human, with identifiable symptoms, with cause. The cause doesn't have to be known. We don't know necessarily what causes all forms of cancer, but it's a disease because there is a destructive process that we see. Acne is a disease because it's an inflammation of the skin, and it may be from diet, it may be from all kinds of things. But what happens is those sins or those symptoms begin to have an impact. And so with the disease of addiction, there was a guy named Dr. Jelnick many years ago who looked at alcoholism. 
and found a very predictable pattern of addiction. When people started getting addicted, how the progression through a series of symptoms took them to the point of death. And it's a recoverable disease. Somebody can recover from that. Uh, sociologists in some ways have looked at it from its sociological impact on society and said this is a criminal issue. And there's some of that too. You're breaking the law. You know you're doing wrong and you're defying society's rules when you do this. So, you know, addiction is more than just some simple little thing that we can say it's one thing or another. There there can be a moral element. There certainly is a medical element and a, a brokenness from addiction that we treat it as a disease that you can recover from. Um, and it, it comes from a place of, of emptiness and brokenness. And the person who becomes an addict oftentimes they're not sitting there thinking to themselves, you know, if I do this drug long enough, hopefully I'll be a drug addict someday. They're just trying to ease some pain or fit in or have fun. And before long, they've played with something that destroyed them. When I was a, a kid, um, smoking was a, more prevalent than it is today, cigarettes. And a lot of folks, I started smoking a little bit as a young man. And I didn't realize that I knew it was bad for me, but, you know, I was a teenager. It was no big deal. And before long, I was smoking, and it was hard to quit. I became addicted to it. I didn't want to smoke anymore. I smelled bad, and the girl I was interested in didn't like that smell, and and I, I didn't like feeling unhealthy. I was starting to cough, and yet it was hard. It was painful for me to quit, and I had to change some patterns in my behavior and really pray about it, ask people for help, hold myself accountable. And it was a difficult process to learn how and to commit to recover from an addiction. So beyond that, a lot of people who are at St. Matthew's House, is not just addiction, though. No, right? not at all. So right. there's there's a lot of other issues happening there. Correct. Uh, it could just be purely economic, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, like a job loss. Right. So how do, you, how do you get somebody who's just experienced a job loss and doesn't have any form of income back to a point where they are on their own? Well, our goal with the shelter operation is somebody comes into the shelter, we see about 10% of our population when they come to us actually have a job. So 90% are unemployed. Our goal... 10% have a job? When they come to us. Wow. Correct. And they may have all kinds of other issues that led to their homelessness, but they're, it's bigger than they can manage. And so they're homeless, they're struggling. Now, the 90%, we get them busy applying for jobs. We work with Career Source, part of Lorenzo Walker. Um, we, we do a lot of things with both job training with our people and with career placement. So we work to really help them find the right answers. And it's amazing to see that within 30 days, about 90% of our people have full-time employment. Wow. And it means providing structure and help. You know, I, I'll relate one goofy story. When I was a teenager, I wanted to get a job. And my dad told me there's a, a market. He was a member of Rotary, and one of his Rotary members was opening a new grocery store. And he said, if you want to get a job, they're going to pay people really well. Go down there and apply. I'll pick up after school and we went down there or when my dad picked me up he took me home instead of to the to the market and said you need to put on your suit I said what and you know I'm a 15 year old boy what do I need a suit for you're going to dress up and there's a lot of kids applying for a job you're going to want to look like a gentleman 
So when I on the way to the grocery store, my dad said, "Don't fill out an application. Ask to talk to the manager." And I said, "Well, they're good. Wouldn't I fill out an application?" He said, "There's going to be hundreds of kids filling out applications. Nobody's going to get an interview. He was really smart. Except the yeah. guy who you come in with a suit, looking sharp, and ask to speak to the manager. They they may think you're an important kid, so they're going to call the manager. You're going to tell them you want to work for him, and you're going to get hired." So sure enough, I did what my dad said, and I got hired. Um, hundreds of kids in line filled out applications, and I got hired on the spot and then filled out my application. <laughs> well, the difference is I had a dad who showed me what to do. A lot of our people don't have a relationship with somebody like my dad. And so sometimes in the shelter operation, our job is to be that parent that shows them this is how we're going to do this. You need to dress this way. You need to behave this way. Here's how to do an interview. Here's how to fill to present a resume. Here's the things you're going to need to do to get employed. And so we believe everybody can be employable in the right circumstance. We do job training with people. We have a culinary program as part of our catering business. And so we actually train people for the um, food service business as part of our thrift stores. We train people in the in hospitality and in a retail. So we have a retail management academy. So we're training our people in the thrift stores that, that start working with us how to be an assistant manager. We want them to be placed in the mall or at some store somewhere making a difference in the world around them. You just got to an important point. Um, and I think you alluded to this before, but a major cause of homelessness is a lack of a personal network. And that that actually, to me, that, that isolation that people have really results from the breakdown of the family. It really does. You know, the number one cause of poverty in America, when they look at if, if you have a child being raised in poverty, chances are that child is being raised by a single mom. Now, that's not an indictment or a statement against single moms. The opposite. She is there doing her best to provide for that kid or those kids. But the reality is... When the family starts breaking up and you don't see the traditional mom and dad raising the kids, um, my wife and I work hard together to make sure our boys are raised right and that they have opportunities. When I'm here talking with you, she's at home working with the kids, taking care of things. She works as well. But, you know, we have a family and we work together. That sense of isolation, homelessness is one of those great isolating and shaming types of things. People, when they're homeless, they look at their life and they don't want somebody to know where they are. They feel so broken by their circumstances and um, there's a sense of shame. In community, when you're hurting, if you, if you or and I are in a relationship and you're going through a tough time, I'm not ashamed of you. I want to help pick you up. Well, our folks come to us very shamed, very broken, needing somebody to be that family of last resort. So if you want our our listeners to have uh, one takeaway from today's conversation, what would that be? You know, we can make a difference. There's two or three things that really, really work. We know that a community coming together works. We know that everybody getting involved and making a difference, can change. we can change the world. We know that capitalism, the free market system, works. The pathway out of poverty is not government 
entitlement programs, but really getting a job and getting the safety and the structure to chart your own course. The people in the greatest level of poverty, they don't dream of getting on welfare benefits. They dream of having a future that they're managing themselves. And that's really the promise of the free market is that you and I can succeed if we apply ourselves and we work hard. And so we believe there is there is nobody out there that's unredeemable. We can make a difference in those lives. And we, we want the community to get involved and take ownership in that. What is St. Matthew's biggest needs right now? Well, summer months are always the toughest the, for us economically. Um, we see throughout the year the, the number of homeless coming to us is, is steady. Um, homeless people aren't as transient as most folks think. They don't, um, they're not snowbirds. They're not going up no- north. This is home to them. And they don't have money for food, much less money for travel. But what happens is the snowbirds leave and the donor dollars go down with most not-for-profits in the community. The summer months are the darkest months for all of us. Um, we invite, one of the best ways to do, do things is we invite people to come down for a tour, see what we're about, ask questions, uh, and decide, is this something I want to get involved in, whether giving, whether volunteering, uh, whether getting getting my friends involved and doing doing some work together. So if somebody wants to volunteer or make a donation, how do they do that? Best way to do it is to call our phone number 774-0500 or our website is stmatthewshouse.org and it's s t m a t t h e w s h o u s e.org. So just stmatthewshouse.org. Ben Ellison, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening to Naples Talk Radio.